Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope everything is good wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Lexi Freeman, author of a new novel called The Book of Ein. I think so. I mean, this one is a little bit closer to my own life. I think this one was more fun in a way because I was drawing on a lot of experience. And I think, I don't know, I think maybe I cared a little bit less because, you know, with, with the first book, I think I was, I was more nervous about that one. And then with this one, it's like, well, you know, you publish your first book and like your life doesn't really change. And the sort of fantasy, whatever fantasy you had of what it would mean to publish a book, that like stuff didn't happen. So I felt like I was writing in a vacuum a little bit, even though I guess that was the experience of the first book in a way. But yeah, maybe I just care less the older I get. All right. That was Lexi Freeman. Her new novel is called The Book of Ein. Available now from Catapult. This is a very smart, very funny book. A biting satire of both our political culture and the people who rage against it. In the Book of Ein, we follow a writer named Anna as she embarks on a journey of self-discovery in the wake of a personal and professional cataclysm that arrives in the form of a cancellation. Anna gets canceled and sets out from New York to Los Angeles to Lesbos in search of artistic and spiritual fulfillment through the exercise of Randian philosophy, (laughs) 
which, uh, which is to say the philosophy propagated by Ayn Rand, author of the novels The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, books that have over the years become sort of foundational texts for the modern ultra-conservative movement. So Anna, our protagonist in the Book of Ayn, is exploring, among other things, the Randian virtue of radical selfishness. And Lexi Freeman, in this novel, is speaking not only to a particular millennial loneliness, but also to a timeless existential predicament, the strangeness and absurdity and hilarity of trying to find meaning in the modern world. I had a great time meeting Lexi Freeman and talking with her about her excellent new novel. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at Substack. The address is bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter, in case you're not familiar with it, is really simple. I let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this show, and I also share relevant news and updates and a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you are a regular listener of this program, if you tune in on a weekly basis, if you get something from it, if you really enjoy what I do, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod and uh, get some merchandise, get a book club subscription, all that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lynn who incidentally just guested on this program not too long ago. In The Night Parade, Jamie Nakamura Lynn braids her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lynn, available from Mariner Books. All right, so my guest once again is Lexi Freeman. Her new novel is called The Book of Ein, available now from Catapult. Lexi Freeman is Australian, and she graduated from Columbia's MFA program in 2012. Her debut novel, Inappropriation, was longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and the Miles Franklin Award. She also writes for television. I am so pleased to have had the chance to talk with Lexi Freeman about her new book, about her career, and life in general. We had a good time, and I'm happy to share this conversation with all of you right now. So, here we go. This is Lexi Freeman, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Book of Ein. I see a lot of you know, books sort of lauded as hilarious and funny. and But yes, I think there's something different about satire. And no, I don't see, I don't see a lot of satire or it's sort of the usual suspects are still doing it, but I, I don't see a lot of new people doing it. 
and I'm thinking of like Percival Everett and Paul Beatty and Sam Lipsight sort of, but like, no, I think people are probably nervous to do it for obvious reasons. <laughs> I mean, with satire, I think you have to have, you kind of have to have a take on the culture or society or something. And I think people do a sort of risk assessment around having a take and it doesn't seem worth it or, or, I mean, you know, I do it to myself a little bit. You can sort of paralyze yourself with trying not to say the wrong thing or trying to sort of make sure you've really analyzed the other side and included those ideas. And then you sort of like dilute the thing and it becomes boring. So if you have that experience, maybe too many times, you just give up and you try to write something else. And I feel like when I write a book, there's a lot of those moments and then just sort of pushing through to saying something that might be a bit risky, but that's, but it just has to be. Otherwise the book's not going to work. I find it to be a relief Yeah. to read somebody who has risky takes and, you know, is sort of saying the thing, which often goes unsaid or even saying something that I disagree with. Like I, I feel like a lot of this stuff gets sanitized or shouted down in the current culture. And I found myself kind of grateful as I was reading, I was like, this is great. This is somebody who's got some creative courage. And I'm wondering about working through your kind of self editor, your internal self editor and giving yourself permission to kind of go there. Like, what is that process for you? I mean, thank you. I, I guess I feel like it usually starts with something more. I feel like my books or the idea usually starts with some kind of frustration and it's more like working through whatever that thing is that I find just so annoying that I want to like kind of you know discuss and so it's usually the first draft the second draft the third draft those are the riskier drafts and often the ideas in those drafts are pretty raw and would 100% get me cancelled and then the process the process of <laughs> editing is sort of more this kind of you know the the different iterations of it become a little bit more cautious or a little bit more dialectical and but again it's that moment of you don't want to you don't want to dilute it too much so it's a kind of in a sense I'm arguing with myself I'm like imagining the other side and having this argument and taking it to a point where it still feels authentic to the character and the story and it's pushing the story along but yeah, I mean, I think you can also get away with a lot more when, when you've fleshed out a character who feels obviously flawed, but in some way relatable or you can understand what's going on. So it's it's those two things. You know, it's different to comedy where, you, you know, a, a comedian kind of has a persona. And so the way that they use their voice, the way they modulate their voice or the way they use gesture, all those things are sort of like helping you in a way to forgive them for the outrageous things that they say. And I'm talking about good transgressive comedians, old school. And, but with, with books, obviously you, you can only do that with language. So it's, it's like, it just requires a lot of choosing the, the right word, like being very, very selective with language. So you talk about 
kind of the origin of your satire and this book, kind of how it's rooted in frustration. Yeah. And something that's sort of like nagging at you, like mentally, you keep thinking about it and chewing on it and maybe you can't quite see it clearly. And so writing might be a way to get closer to a clear view. Yes. Can you tell me like what it was that was frustrating you? Oh, I'm going to try to remember. But yes, I, I feel like it's almost like a tweet. I don't, I don't post. I mean, I don't tweet, but it's like a, yeah, it's a thing that if I just said it, you know, in the spur of the moment, all that energy would have, you know, it w- would have diffused it and it would be over. So it's almost like a, it's a thing that you cultivate and you sort of like, yeah, continue to sort of um, think about and and argue and and argue with yourself about. And I think with this with this idea, it was I don't remember specifically what it was, but I think it was something around virtue signaling and a kind of culture of something to do with like a sort of disingenuous altruism or a kind of collectivism that I felt was rooted often in more tribal and often psychological kind of uh, impulses and not really this kind of pure act of goodwill. And I, I kind of was I was sort of frustrated with that and then the sort of counter argument to that, the most grotesque counter argument would be Ayn Rand. And, uh, and so I started reading her nonfiction and looking for the places where I could relate to her arguments, her argument for selfishness, for like, you know, living for, uh, oneself and how that is, you know, a moral system that that she and many people believe is um, works. So you were just as kind of an exercise, reaching for Ayn Rand because it felt like the counterweight to what you were seeing maybe online with respect to like the pieties of the left. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I obviously could have reached from from many other sort of more kind of sophisticated thinkers to argue against the virtue signaling or the that thing that that was frustrating me but I kind of wanted to use Ayn because she is a figure you know she's such a kind of polarizing figure and because the ideas are quite simple and easily digested and it's not that fun kind of trying to satirize like I don't know Nietzsche or you know your book becomes a different kind of thing then for a very for a different kind of reader and I I wanted yeah I wanted to kind of use what felt like outrageous and and sort of unjustifiable or inarguable and find the argument or like find the argument that would work for me as someone who considers themselves to be on the left for the most part like find the the stuff that I agree with in in her philosophy, like that's a f- much more fun project than than talking about you know someone everyone already agrees with or yeah I think that's um that that and it's hard it's like there were moments where I was like oh Jesus you know like every time 
a billionaire went to space or some other fucking thing happened in the world that was just like, oh, God, capitalism is so fucked up. I was just like, how can I justify this this character's decisions? And, you know, like everything leads back to this problem of the free market or, you know, whatever, deregulation. And But I still... I think I I moved a little bit away from the economic stuff and was more interested ultimately in the kind of spiritual aspect of her philosophy in the sense of like what are we living for, like the life philosophy. Uh, yeah, which I found I could I could argue better for that. So narratively, just so we can keep listeners mm-hmm. oriented, especially those who have not yet had a chance to read, the book of Ein is about a woman named Anna who is an author who gets a terrible review in the New York times and is essentially canceled. She has written a satire of the opioid epidemic (laughs) that is labeled as classist and it kind of undoes her life and her career. And so in response to this, we see her embark upon a kind of journey and it is a spiritual journey which is something about the book that I quite like. It's a philosophical book, but it's also got like really uh, deep things on its mind. It's like got a lot going on at like the heart level. It's not just a thinky novel. And that's that's basically it in a nutshell, right? Did no, I miss anything? I mean, no, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely the description I like. And especially... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that about, you know, for me, yeah, it feels like a, an existential quest in in many ways. And she, Anna, kind of gloms onto the work of Ayn Rand and is finding, like, comfort and relief in it. And she's sort of developing or trying to develop her own new personal philosophy and way of being in the aftermath of this cancellation. And it's very funny. Something that I want to be sure to say before we get any further is how funny I found Ayn Rand and how sympathetic I found her on the page. Like that's one of the beauties of this book is that Ayn Rand, I think for people on the left in particular, is kind of this two-dimensional boogie woman, uh, right? I mean, she's sort of, she's just used as kind of a symbol and your novel humanizes her. And there's something sweet and heartbroken about her. She was originally, her original name is Elisa Rosenbaum. And her personal history has to do with what? The Bolshevik revolution? Yeah. And her father, a pharmacist, essentially losing his livelihood to a group of fascist thugs who came and essentially forcibly removed him from his pharmacy with Ein or Elisa observing as a 12-year-old girl or something. Yeah. So this seems like the formative experience of her youth, correct? Yeah. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect (laughs) for where she ends up going ideologically. Yeah. Yeah. So that, as a reader, made me heartbroken for her and made me understand why she would find collectivism and the more like extreme ideologies of the left repellent and would gravitate so strongly to the extreme ideologies of the right. I mean, I could, 
I could see myself maybe having a similar response had I been through something like that as a child. Yeah, totally. And I think that gets lost. I think that stuff gets lost. And not to get too carried away, but oftentimes when there are human beings with whom we strongly disagree or we find their ideas repellent, or we find their personalities repellent, we fail to see them as children. It would be useful for all of us to take a close look at the childhoods, not to get too woo-woo, <laughs> but I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's true. If you can see somebody at age five and get to understand who they were as children and what they saw, a lot of times whatever really rigid ideas you might have about them will soften. Absolutely, yeah. That happened for you? Like was your, I'm curious to know about what your, perception of Ayn Rand was and what your relationship was to the idea of her prior to writing this book and then maybe after writing it? I mean, I wasn't that familiar with her. Being Australian, she's not sort of an important figure for us. So I I knew about her, but I only really kind of became interested in her when I moved to the US and, and you know, talking to people and, and hearing how much they despised her, she became interesting to me. So I don't think I ever had like a strong feeling about her before I really started researching. And I think, I feel like our relation, my relationship with her was more, I had frustration with her when I was like, oh, really? Like you, you you had to become obsessed with a like psychopath who like murdered this girl and like you wrote this whole treatment of like all these details i'm like Ugh, like why couldn't you just not do that it really is going to make it hard for me to like get on board with you but i loved reading about i mean i read a couple of biographies one was written by the man that she had an affair with for like seven years who was 25 years younger than her his wife wrote this biography that's pretty fun then they and her and Ayn were friends reading those biographies yeah when when there's like things that little details that you get like that she loved musicals and there was this part of her that like just wanted everything to be fun and light and beautiful and like that like that lived in her as well and and, and, you know, just like trying to understand the kind of combative person that she became quite early on who like never seemed to really experience much joy in her life, obviously like a workaholic and, you know, yeah, like trying to figure out how all those pieces fit together was interesting. But at the same time, like I agree with what you're saying in terms of like when we when we understand a person's childhood, then they become more human to us. And but there's a there's a part of me, and obviously in the book, where the the book kind of argues against this in a sense that like um, do we have to know a person's like trauma or backstory in order to have empathy with them and it's a it's not a question I can answer it feels like a it's a it's like a problem for the novel in a way and different people have handled it in interesting and different ways and yeah I I, um in a sense I would love to not have to tell those stories about about child you know the childhood and I wish there was a way that we could just be curious about each other without that 
or maybe it's just that it feels clumsy to add in the backstory sometimes. But that's a sort of that's a like almost a technical thing as a writer that you sort of think, how am I going to do this in an interesting way? Well, I think I just think as a human matter, it's easier for me to understand somebody. Mm. It, it it provides context. It's the origin story, mm. you know, for her, or at least part of the or a central part of the origin story. So mm-hmm. to read the work of Ayn Rand or to have a conversation with her, you know, about matters of philosophy and objectivism and everything, and to not know that she watched her father lose his livelihood in his pharmacy at age 12 in the Bolshevik revolution feels like you're, you know, sort of adrift. You're not getting the full picture. Yeah. You just think she's like an asshole or something. And it's like, even people like, yeah, I was just thinking about this today. It's like funny the way people align themselves with the sort of the, the winners and the losers or the, the victims and the perpetrators or the oppressed and the oppressor. And, and like it, it always comes down to some kind of the way that you identify yourself or, or some kind of thing that's happened to you that has, that has marked you or, or kind of, you know, obviously made you feel like you kind of align more with one side. And um, yeah. And I do think there's value in that, but then it, then it also gets like really, it gets, it gets some tricky because yes, then then we look at like what made Hitler the way Hitler was, what makes Trump the way Trump is, and it just and I think that's also really interesting. It's like a whole other book, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's I think it's like a really interesting moral kind of question. No doubt. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Yeah. I think a lot of us have thoughts along these lines. And yeah. I feel like when it comes to Ayn Rand being funny, mm. that is not something that I necessarily had in my brain prior to reading your novel. And I'm wondering about you. Like, you're obviously a funny person. Though I should say, you present 
relatively seriously. <laughs> like, I think after reading your book, I mean, you have a, I, you know, I'm just saying that like after reading your book, I was coming in like being like, is she just going to be quipping? <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily surprise me that you're not. I think sometimes on the page, people are one way and then, you know, it's, it's impossible to maintain yeah. that level of funny. Yeah. And I think I, I've met, a, I've met a couple of comedians in my time and, you know, really funny people who in person, yeah, were not that funny or they were more interested in being smart or being insightful, or there was, you know, a, a different kind of conversation than what I'd expected. And, um, and I guess I feel like it comes down often to, yes, obviously comedians and people who write humorous books, they've crafted those jokes and, um, it's, it's those jokes aren't just pouring out of them necessarily. But I also think being funny, like for me, it, it's like if I'm really relaxed with a person, I feel like it comes more naturally. Obviously doing interviews is not ideal. I'd, I'm not like as relaxed as, as usual, but um, I find that that's, that's like a big part of it as well and it kind of that kind of can, ties into cancel culture in a way because it's like when you feel safe and comfortable and like you can just make jokes then you'll be naturally more funny but if you're really nervous about being misunderstood or misinterpreted then then you come across a different way and I feel like maybe in interviews for this book I am more serious <laughs> because I feel like there's a lot of very perilous terrain to cover and so I'm careful not to just be like joking around too much and accidentally saying something insane I relate to that yeah I think I used I used to do monologues on this podcast oh yeah where I would just because I just thought that's what you're supposed to do I think I started you know years ago listening to like comedy podcasts because that was what was proliferating early on mm -hmm. to the greatest degree and I thought you had to do that and I'm not a comedian, but I, I honestly, first of all, I kind of ran out of things to say. There's only so much you can talk about. I got sick of hearing myself, but I also, I just feel like it's too fraught. I'm like, I don't need to, nobody needs to hear me opine every week or twice a week. Yeah, It's too much. It's better to save it for a book, right? Where you exactly. have some time to kind of review. And exactly. I want to uh, make sure to finish this thought about Ayn Rand being funny because I'm wondering if you didn't find her funny going in and then discovered that she was funny. <laughs> like there's something inherently comedic about her that is, it's so unexpected and wonderful to think of this woman who is a wounded child as we all are and who in response develops this really passionate like philosophical approach to life that is rooted in the self and in kind of like the virtues of selfishness. Incidentally, as you were talking earlier, somebody who flashed into my brain was Walt Disney. Oh, when you're talking, when you were talking about Ayn Rand loving musicals, I was like, <laughs> wow, because Walt Disney was a very hard right human being, yeah. but he had this very kind of like, obviously this obsessive desire to create this kind of utopian small town or whatever. Mm -hmm kind of uh, obsessed with Americana. But anyway, like to, to think of Ayn as this wounded person who then becomes really strident in her political and philosophical beliefs and becomes kind of, what, the virtues of selfishness, but then who also in her life 
I think is thwarted romantic, has like romantic ambitions of hers that are thwarted, disappointed by men in her life, heartbroken. And also ultimately, and in conjunction with that, I think sees her philosophical approach to existence come apart a bit. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? I mean, right? Like it sort oh, of yeah. fails. I I'm wondering in your reading of her, how much she acknowledged that or understood that it was maybe more wobbly than she wished it were. I mean, I don't think she ever really acknowledged the sort of hypocrisy in her philosophy that sort of revealed itself through her personal relationships and, and namely through this kind of open affair she had with one of her students where he basically stopped, I think fell out of love with her, started seeing another woman. And so this whole idea of, you know, selfishness and, and the way she had justified her own selfishness to her husband um, who knew about the affair and his wife and uh, her, her, the, her partner's wife and, all of that kind of fell apart in the end because Nathaniel, her lover, had been lying to her. And, and you know, these were the people who were supposed to be the most ferocious, you know, advocates of her philosophy. And they just, like, he totally failed her. But I don't think she ever, I don't think she blamed the philosophy. She blamed the people. And I think that's where she is kind of, you know, she's a limited person she I mean you know it's no accident that people often read her as teenagers and like really love her books and then kind of re-encounter her in college and then it's like really embarrassing that they liked her or and I think she speaks to this like adolescent sort of you know fearlessness and and like very like young unwise unsympathetic un like lacking in compassion and the ability to sort of, you know, have a more dialectical view of the world. It's like she got stuck there and was just there her whole life and it worked for her. Like, unfortunately, that sort of lower part of our nature, our natures as people, um, you know, gets activated by Ayn Rand and, and there's always an audience for that. And, um, and so she she could make a career of it, but in a way, when people have success, it, it can be a, it can be a burden, or it can be a you know I think it was probably a disaster for her in a way because she she never questioned her own ideas and she just continued to try to like I don't know make them or shoehorn them into you know as as the decades progressed she sort of continued trying to apply them to a changing world, like including, you know, the sort of environmental movements of the 70s, you know, she she kind of couldn't couldn't accept that obviously industry had been bad for the environment and just got herself into all kinds of like ridiculous arguments over that stuff because she just couldn't be wrong, which is a symptom of narcissism. <laughs> And, um, which is also part of what makes her funny. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. That's right. So yes, she's a, she's a tragic, she's a kind of tragicomic figure in that she's just pursuing this goal. I mean, that's kind of, I think that's kind of one definition of both tragedy and comedy. Like 
that those um the Belgian brothers, the filmmakers, like their characters are always just like pursuing this goal relentlessly. And like it makes for this kind of tragic character arc where they end up dead or they end up, you know, whatever, someone else is dead. And comedy is a little bit the same. It's like when someone just cannot see around their own issues or psychology and there's this space between what they think about themselves and what we see about them. I think that's like that's great comedy. And it's it it sort of teeters on the edge of tragedy. So yeah, I think she's both of those things. Um, which makes her a great protagonist. So your protagonist, Anna, who is investing herself in the philosophies of Ayn Rand and is sort of at least exploring the possibility of leading her life in accordance with Randian philosophy, is on this kind of adventure of self-discovery. And she is on the page, very funny, very bawdy, we see her make all kinds of mistakes and get into all kinds of crazy situations. She goes from New York to uh, Los Angeles to Greece. And I have to make sure to flag the fact that you name check Sabbath theater in the novel, the Philip Roth novel. Oh, where is that? <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Yeah. I underlined it. Yeah. Simply, be, simply because... Anna reminds me sort of, of Mickey Sabbath. Oh, what a great compliment. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's that kind of character. It's the kind of character who kind of goes there and says all these things and indulges her whims and shares every thought and is really, there's a lot of, like, there's some body horror in this. There's a lot of poop in this novel. Yes, yes, there <laughs> there's a lot of like, like, you know, the workings of the body, the female body in particular is on the page in uh, comedic contexts and that that's sort of sabbath theater which in my memory is like i mean it is so over the top yeah yeah and incidentally was the book i think that philip roth liked the best yeah. of all of his books or, or said that he had had the best time writing yeah uh, i'm wondering if maybe was this a good time compared to your previous book i guess which is also a satire but i'm just wondering if you you must have had a lot of fun writing anna yeah, I think so. I mean, this one is a little bit closer to my own life than the first one. Inappropriation. Inappropri yeah, yeah, is is um I mean, it's there are things about it that are close to my adolescence, but I changed a lot of things because obviously I I updated it for a uh internet literate world, which w was not the case when I was in school. But yes, I think this one was more fun in a way because uh, I was drawing on a lot of experience or yes, as, as, a, as a leaping off point. <laughs> and, and I think, I don't know, I think maybe I cared a little bit less because, you know, with, with a first book, I think I was I was more nervous about that one. And then with this one, it's like, well, you know, you publish your first book and like your life doesn't really change. And the sort of fantasy, whatever fantasy you had of what it would mean to publish a book, that like stuff didn't happen. So, yeah, I think it, I felt like I was writing in a vacuum a little bit, even though I guess that was the experience of the first book in a way. But yeah, maybe I just care less the older I get. But yes, I think I found it fun. But I was also writing in another kind of vacuum, and that vacuum is Australia. <laughs> so yeah, like writing about the US, writing about the culture wars in a sense, and doing it from Australia where like nobody cared. 
and nobody, well, they care, they do care, they care a little bit. Um, but obviously nobody really kind of was interested in the Ayn Rand of it all. And so, yeah, it was a, it was like a little secret thing I was doing in a way that like hasn't really felt real until like the last few weeks in a funny way. Uh, so wait, what, what, you went back home to Australia for a while? Yeah. During the, during the pandemic, I went back and started to do some work in TV and yes, it is, I, I don't know if I still live there or not. I'm not sure what I'm doing, but, um, I, I have been living there for the last two years. Uh, but yeah. you're in New York right now. Right now I'm in New York. Yes. And I've, I've been in Europe quite a bit. I, I returned to the commune that the book, the, the fictionalized commune in the book is, is loosely inspired by this place that I, I do go to in Greece. What's it called? It doesn't really have a name. It's sort of a, it's just like a kind of meditation center that, um, that I had heard about through friends. It's sort of not, not like a very, they don't really publicize. It's not like a for-profit thing. It's sort of, it's more like a community kind of almost. Yeah. That I just heard about through a friend of my mother's actually. She's a, my mother's new age psychotherapist. So a new age psychotherapist that's uh that's like an old thing i've said about her because um the character from inappropriation the mother was like loosely based on her and i still say new age psychotherapist but she she's not a new age psychotherapist i don't know why i say that she's just a psychotherapist anyway but she's kind of a hippie well not even i mean no i think there's so many slightly alternative ish sort of practices now that like pretty straight therapists use I don't even think it's the right term anymore maybe in the like 90s it was but she just you know dabbled in some more alternative practices but like nothing crazy I mean I've gone to some crazy therapists recommended by her but she doesn't do these practices I once went to a therapist who like used burping to expel the energy, like the bad energies, like a, what are they called? Kinesiologist, kind of like that. But, but literally she would like belch uh, to release the energy. Like she'd put her hand on my, you know, shoulder and then just like let out this monstrous burp. And that was her releasing the bad energy. It was so weird. And afterwards, I just like had to lie down and I just like fell into this really deep sleep. It was just like a crazy afternoon. <laughs> anyway, my I've mother never heard that. that. I've never heard that one before. I know, but it was kind of amazing. It did something. I don't know what it did, but it, it did something. And like I got a good vibe from this woman. I kind of think she's the real deal. I'm just not sure what she what it does. <laughs> but it whatever it is, it, it feels real. All right. Well, I want to ask you, we're going to come back. We're going to come back to the spiritual, but I want to ask you a kind of craft question. Mm -hmm. Something that this book did to me as I was reading it was it made me keep wondering about how you wrote this book, like what it actually looked like to go through and to write satire and to walk this kind of tightrope that you have to walk when you're writing 
in a comedic satirical mode and you are testing the limits of what's appropriate mm-hmm. like you do a very deft job of it and sure. i'm wondering and you said earlier that like the first or in second drafts would likely get you canceled forever mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me but i <laughs> what i want to ask you what i want to ask you about is the like the third and fourth drafts where you're really honing it and maybe working with an editor or something to try to pick the right words. I mean, so much of this does come down to just very selective word choosing and phrasing and making sure you get things calibrated just right so that it maybe dances up to the line, maybe puts one foot over the line, but then comes back and doesn't go so far as to what irretrievably offend or I don't know. Mm. Like, can you just talk about that process? Because it's, it's unique to comedic writing and satire to try to do this and to sustain it over the course of a novel feels extra. Like it's one thing to write a joke. Yeah. It's another thing to write like a a script for a half hour comedy on TV. Yeah. But an 80,000 word novel (laughs) in this mode presents challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think it's the third or fourth draft that is, I, I think that would probably also get me canceled. It's like, I do edit a lot and I think I think what happens, the biggest thing that happens maybe as you edit a book like this is that you get clearer and clearer on what the character's issues are. Like in the beginning, I think I had a vague idea. She's, you know, sort of contrarian, a little bit narcissistic, sort of um, kind of moves between like blaming others, being a bit of a victim and then sort of cutting people off and, and having this kind of more whatever kind of superior sort of complex or whatever and um and then as you go on you sort of it's like yeah the it's like the the character just becomes richer and more complex and has these little things that obviously preoccupy or um that they fixate on and and so you're not just commenting or kind of making fun of the culture or other characters you're also like giving you're like injecting this character and this voice with like more of their little ticks and like in a sense that makes them kind of more of a relatable or like a person that you can kind of understand but also you see the flaws in the person and I think what's going on in some unconscious way is that the reader knows that the writer knows that this person is is like having an emotional moment or is confused or is just like reacting and so the thing they're saying is not it's like not being taken as seriously as it otherwise would be and there's still always like a little grain of truth in there or like it's but but there's a there's a a sort of um a disclaimer like inbuilt into their psychology that you're like you're sort of cultivating or or you're like growing as, as you do multiple edits. And yeah, in terms of language, it's just like the more, the more you read your book and the more time you take away and then you go back and you can read with fresh eyes. You can be like, Oh, that word. And it's this thing of like, you know, that word makes her seem kind of meaner than necessary or that word like, 
yeah, I don't know. It's just like a, you kind of just try to be sensitive to what, what is going to tip it over the line and what is like going to just sit right on the edge. And then, yes, I have a fantastic editor who's really good at, you know, um, yeah, her line edits are great and she'll, you know, there's a few, a few times she would say, do we need this word or whatever? And, and that's also really helpful. But yeah, it's just, I feel like it's a balancing act and it's, and it can, and it kind of gets funnier actually, the more thoughtful you are about language, the funnier it gets. Like the first, the first draft maybe isn't that funny because, or it's not as funny because you're kind of saying it in the most vicious way or the most like, yeah, vitriolic way. And then it's like too harsh or it lacks something, some like little softening, bouncy quality that actually makes it funnier. And and you sort of like, you find that uh, as you kind of become a little bit more generous, generous in the sense of like making this character fuller, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's very voicey. You know, you yes. just get to know that character. And Anna is a redeeming, I mean, it's not like she's without her good qualities. You couldn't do a character like her in the absence of that. And there, there's really how many people have no redeeming qualities, right? We were yeah. kind of alluding to this with respect to Ayn Rand and her childhood and her kind of primal wounds and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like the voice on the page that you land on is really impressive as a sustained act on the page. And speaking of sustained acts, you have a history as an actor <laughs> and have some training in that. And yes. what was it? Five years, went to drama school. You were part of a Shakespeare company and then you quit that and moved to writing. And uh, yeah. I feel like, I, I feel like knowing that about you brought this book into a little bit sharper focus as a way of understanding how you were so good at inhabiting this character on the page and doing voice and character work. I mean, it has to be informed a little bit by your work as an actor, right? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, yes, I think I think it would it would be because I I don't know if I was a great actor, but I was an obsessive actor in the sense that I had to like I mean, I never played any like huge roles. I the biggest role I played was Celia in As You Like It, and she's sort of the best friend of Rosalind it's you know it's it's an okay it's a it's a good role but it's not like a huge role and I gave her you know this incredible backstory and I had playlists and I just yeah I, I think I really tried to inhabit a person like her and I decided she was a kind of a certain kind of person in every and and like yes the emotional um, like what she was going through emotionally and she's a bit of a brat or, or that's the, that's what I kind of came to in the end that, you know, she feels like she's losing her best friend and she's a bit sort of, um, maybe a little bit self selfish about that or, 
Uh, I can't remember if that's quite right. But anyway, some, you know, I, I just made a strong decision about what kind of person she was and inhabited that. I feel like that's, yeah, I think that's obviously affects, affects like especially a first-person narrator, which this book is. And, and the first book was not, was a third-person which I'd always thought was sort of easier. And in a sense, I think I was a little bit scared of first person because it seemed, you know, more risky. Like you can't sort of hide as well behind the third person omniscient narrator who's kind of, who can in a sense like, you know, wink or nudge the reader and, you know, with a first person it's just all, out there and so there's other tricks you know you have to perform to let the reader know that you as the writer know that this person well what I what I kind of said before about you know giving them this rich psychology so that what they say is not taken necessarily at face value and there's like a whole you know iceberg yeah I think that's probably where the acting and the just that like work that Stanislavski like what do they want what are they where are they what, what's happening all that stuff I think I asked myself those questions a fair amount through the plotting of the book and you no longer act no I don't I think I made a good decision to stop acting <laughs> I mean it was I just didn't like living a life of waiting around for someone else to give me a job um, I found that kind of s stressful and just, I didn't like the lack of, you know, agency or, so I, I really, I think this lifestyle suits me better. Just going into the void, writing a book and then emerging a, a few years later and, uh, trying not to say the wrong thing on a podcast. <laughs> You're doing great. Okay, You're doing good. Great. <laughs> But that makes sense. Acting is strange in that way, in that it's a creative endeavor in which you need to receive permission from someone else to engage in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do things now on like TikTok and Instagram, and obviously lots of people have come up that way. But when I was doing it, you kind of just, I, mean, I think you could make like a web series, <laughs> but even that was like, oh my God, I, I can't, I don't, I didn't really understand what that was. And yeah, it just, uh, and I, yeah, I'm glad. I, I feel like it would have been a difficult thing, a difficult career, especially as a woman to navigate all, all the image stuff. But look, I mean, I, I didn't get, I didn't even get to the screen. I was doing like Shakespeare and no one even wanted to put me on camera. So these were not necessarily issues I was going to face. Well, you do send up in your novel kind of social media, micro content culture. Yes. I mean, this is something that is on your radar for sure. And it is funny. I mean, Big Boy is a very funny character. This young love interest of Anna who is like, what is he doing? He's just making like little <laughs> TikTok videos or whatever and yeah. something like that. Yeah. But making like a living at it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so strange, all this stuff. I was just reading before we started this call, I was reading an article, I think, in the Washington Post about OnlyFans. 
And it was all about this like farm in Florida, which has like become this huge like hive of OnlyFans oh, people oh, who are essentially making like some version of amateur porn. They're like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's either it's either like explicitly porn or they're like <laughs> working out nude for people and they pay for. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah. But and that whole so scene, I know that's what's like, and it, it just doesn't. But it makes me feel there is some kind of like large feeling of uh, no this is bad in the aggregate this is bad <laughs> this is a bad sign for humanity that this is what's happening yeah i mean i think porn is is not a great thing not you know like whatever i don't i'm not saying it shouldn't exist at all but yeah the way that it's kind of dominated or the way that it's the way that it's kind of messing up people's sex lives and and their sexuality or their drive or you know like we all know those stories and yeah I think it's um the combination of social media and porn and all of that stuff it's like it's not good for any of us ultimately in the sense that I don't think I think we're kind of weirdly like disembodied now like I think that's kind of what the internet and and just porn kind of does it sort of like cuts you off from the rest of yourself as a sexual being it's just like genital and and um yeah I guess I feel like experiences that come up in the book especially in the commune in the second half are sort of examining some of that stuff like what it means to be living a more embodied life in a place like that in nature and and then there's pitfalls there as well yeah, I feel like the attention economy combined with porn is a weird mix. Like it feels like the most base approach to trying to get attention online. It's like, okay, you didn't like my tweets? <laughs> well, now yeah. I'm going to have I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do CrossFit naked for you. It's like, okay, well people are just grasping at straws. It feels really sad to me in some way. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I guess, um, you know, there's like some sex workers that I've followed on Instagram who have like very, you know, ideological and political kind of stances on this stuff and I get, like I get that that stuff as well but, you know, like is it good for the culture at large? I, I don't know and, and like, I mean, I find this stuff all really interesting, you know, um, women in particular sort of like taking ownership of their sexuality and their bodies and putting that stuff online and um and how much of it is like well this again comes up in the book like this question of free will versus just a response to what the market like kind of wants or the culture or you know and and a culture that is like that still sort of has very a kind of limited idea of um of sexuality yeah so so like are you empowered or like when you when you figure out how to make money off this system that is so kind of like flawed and i don't know <laughs> but i i don't either yeah i don't either there's like in this article like one of these only fans kingpins was someone says like, I think this is like a, it's almost become the rallying cry of the OnlyFans community. Apparently this is news to me, but somebody said to one of these kingpins, like, well, you know, your children are going to cry when they realize 
one day that they see these videos and realize that this is what their parent did. Yeah. And this woman was like, well, they can cry. They'll be crying in a Ferrari. And so like <laughs> crying, crying yeah. in a Ferrari has become like the, and I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't feel fully healthy to me. Well, that's it's, kind of, I mean, that's sort of, that gets right to the heart of the thing. It's like, what, what's more important to you? Oh, or like, exactly. You're working within a system that like, that thinks having a Ferrari is like the highest possible like like that's the pinnacle of achievement or happiness or you know and it's like personally I think you know having a more embodied sexuality and living a more simple life and you know would probably bring more people happiness or like less mental health issues and and yeah they're not going to have Ferraris but like the Ferraris are a substitute for you know everything that's kind of missing for us as as like yeah people trapped inside this really sterile and kind of inhumane system but anyway that's well, maybe that's a different book yeah well but i mean it is you know it is relevant to what happens in your novel at least in places and yeah you know i, I repeatedly marveled at what an astute cultural observer you are which i guess good satirists have to be and there's a lot happening here there are a lot of really deft like references and slide jokes that are tucked away inside the lines of this novel and you clearly are a person who uh, is fascinated and interested in a lot of things but you have a very sharp eye for the culture and for like wellness culture and spiritual culture and online, all of it. You know, you're just one of these people who's got a good antenna for all this stuff. And philosophically, you are somebody who, I don't think you have like a rigid philosophical, or not a rigid, but like a rigidly defined or like a really sharply defined philosophical approach to life. I think the whole point, and you can disagree with me, but I feel like the whole point of your book has to do with having some flexibility and some openness to different perspectives. And I was poking around online when I was getting ready for this conversation and was pleased to learn that you're a fan of John Gray. Oh yeah. The, yeah. the author of Straw Dogs. I've had a conversation about Straw Dogs on this show more than once. Really? But like, oh yeah. Like not not a ton, but like whenever someone is like into Straw Dogs, I'm like, that book fucked me up yeah. like it, in, a good, in a good way, yes. in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> but it totally recalibrated my relationship to the, like, you know, to the idea of humanism, for example. And it really is like a, it's a, it's a short, very powerful text, mm. but just like to hear you talk a little bit about that and like the philosophical underpinnings of like your work. I mean, Oh God, I'm, I'm like, incredibly bad at remembering books and movies and me too so I'm like not gonna be I'm not gonna be able to say anything particularly insightful about straw dogs but but yes that book was like was like such a relief to use your word like reading it was I I just felt like oh oh okay <laughs> other people other people feel this way and yeah, the way he expresses it, it's just like, yeah, it's the most concise kind of powerful writing. 
and yeah, the ideas, I guess, are, I, I guess it's sort of, um, you know, to just be very, to be skeptical and to, to sort of like re-examine these established ideas of like whatever is kind of being dished out as, as, as moral wisdom. And I feel like I read that book while I was writing in appropriation or around that time and, and was just feeling particularly sort of alienated by what was happening in the culture. Cause it was a much more, a much more like fraught sort of censorious kind of weird moment with the identity politics stuff as Trump was being elected and people were like really freaked out and, and so like bearing down more like I think that's naturally what happens people you know were kind of the culture was uh in a sense becoming like more fascistic because people were scared of him being a fascist and even though it was the left that was doing it it was like yeah this is sort of obviously like when cancel culture was like really starting to take off and um and yeah, I think it's just that thing of feeling like there is like this, this real, like, I feel like a real, I feel very allergic to black and white thinking. And, and I feel like John Gray really, you know, that's kind of what he's getting at. Just like to really analyze, to think, to, to think for yourself, to not just take what looks like right thinking and, and you know, and, and again, this is a little bit like uh, something that I like about Ayn Rand, which is that she's also asking people to think for themselves. Like she famously didn't read any philosophers. She read like a little bit of Nietzsche and Aristotle, but she was like, oh no, you know, none of the philosophers are um, worth reading except for me basically. And, um, and obviously that's a little, that's a little too extreme. But just this, like, I just feel like people sort of don't think for themselves as much as, uh, as well, it, it, it surprised me that, like, people around the time that Trump was elected really sort of, I think that panic kind of made people stop thinking for themselves and, like, latching onto the, these ideas that were a comfort and it was a comfort to be included among a group of like-minded thinkers, but I feel like we also have to be careful of that. And now, of course, we have a whole other phenomenon <laughs> that sort of came out of the pandemic with conspiracy theories, and that's like really thinking for yourself in a way that's like not great or, you know, has its own issues. Like everyone's an autodidact now who's got, you know, their like vision of what's really going on in the world. So like both things have their problems but I just feel like that healthy skepticism and just like this kind of counterintuitive thing that John Gray is doing where he's like taking this sort of perceived wisdom and kind of flipping it and sort of I guess his humanism it's it's I'm trying to remember but it's sort of like he lets us be animals he lets us be wrong he lets us be savage he kind of like and I think there's yeah, there's some like very liberating ideas in there. I think once you've touched the most grotesque idea or the most like, um, 
you know, the most kind of the verboten or whatever, I think naturally you'll gravitate back towards something closer to the middle or something that, you know, um, kind of brings in the other side a little bit more. But if you're not even allowed to go to the most, the ugliest place and, and to like sniff around a little bit over there, then I think you get this like repressed sort of like, like something much darker and, and sort of sinister and dangerous. And, and I guess I feel like that's, you know, that's what creeps into the culture and that sort of, you know, obviously comedy has, has had this kind of moment where if you're not allowed to say the, the difficult kind of dark thing, then, then you're going to say it even more. You're going to say it in a way that's not necessarily that funny or interesting anymore. And there's like a bunch of comedians who've kind of come up who do that now. And I, and they're not like, they're not as funny as some of the guys who kind of got in trouble who were doing it in a more sophisticated way. Um, but the culture sort of just got too reactive. It is sort of fascinating how when there is the elevation of a, an aspiring autocrat in the political culture mm. and the threat of fascism is real, mm -hmm. that there would be a fascistic reaction yeah on the from the opposition and it's it's like this i i've been saying this lately just because of all that's been happening in the middle east like the one thing i could bring myself to say just because i'm no expert and mm. i feel like everyone's coming hard with the takes it's and amazing I'm like, how everyone is an expert <laughs> i'm not uh, listen i'm the first to say i am yeah. not i'm keeping my mouth shut and i'm reading i'm trying to read but i was yeah. just like I was like, nothing is more dangerous on earth than a group of angry, fearful homo sapiens. <laughs> yes. And I just feel like when you get a group of people together and they're really afraid, mm -hmm. bad things are going to often happen. Yeah. Bad behavior often will ensue. Likewise, if there's a group of people who are enraged and then maybe the worst possible possibility is mm. when it's a combination of both. Yeah. <laughs> when there's like a big group of people who are angry and afraid. Yeah. And then you start to have like these, you know, reversions into really simplistic thinking and fascistic thinking. And there are purity tests. Yeah. And you're either right or you're wrong. You're either good or you're bad. You're either with us or against us. And it's like, I feel that. Yeah. And I feel like, I'm kind of like you, I'm very resistant and repelled by black and white thinking. And I feel just much more comfortable and closer to how things really are when I'm existing in what I call the gray zone. Yeah. Because everything's endlessly complex to me. Yeah. And maybe, and then because everything is endlessly complex to me, I will sometimes say to myself, maybe this constant like needling that you do mentally where you're picking things apart and trying to counter your own arguments and you're trying to sort of see the complexity of things. Mm. Maybe this is in some instances a moral failing because I lack mm. the moral clarity that I actually should have. Yeah. You know, so I can spiral every which way. Oh, yeah. But it's, uh, and lots of younger people would accuse you of that. <laughs> you know, I, I have the same fear and I, I'm often questioning, questioning myself about it. You know, this, the, the sort of fear of being labeled apathetic or uh, I think, 
you know, as you get older and you and you hopefully get wiser, you do move towards the middle or you, you know, I mean, that's also the accusation. But I do think we need to reclaim um, how cool it is <laughs> to be in the middle or to be able to, like, listen to both sides and try to synthesize the information rather than just kind of latching onto an ideology and, like, pushing it. And yeah, I mean, it's it's wild to me the way that people, I mean, yeah, have have these have these ideas that that they aren't interested in questioning or being curious about. And I guess you know, this is kind of why I write books and why journalism terrifies me because I I want to have the space to you know think through these complex things in a novel with a character who's got all of their issues and you know it's filtered through them and and I think you know that's a that's a more interesting project and I hope it's a more like satisfying thing for someone to encounter as opposed to my hot take on Twitter or you know whatever and I also think this is a good like I think this is a part of the problem with what's happened in the last few years with comedy and satire like I would say they are both really important sort of pressure valves for a culture for you know like releasing some of the some of the dread or some of the you know even just the the antagonisms that fester if we don't have a place to sort of air them and in a sense comedy should be this quite safe space where you know you can uh where a comedian can can obviously like test the bounds of what is acceptable to say and the audience can also like you know I've had these experiences in comedy shows where yeah like the comedian is saying a whole bunch of incredibly offensive things about women about Jews about Asians about whatever it is and I've been sitting there next to whomever is being insulted and I'm being insulted and we're all laughing and it's like the nicest feeling it's like a really because we all understand the structure this is happening inside of like it's a it's a very self-conscious thing to be making these kinds of transgressive jokes and in the right comedian's mouth like it works really well and I think you know you try to you know there's and then there's minds who that are like not interested in in that and think it's it's so dangerous it's not even worth you know the risk of 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 allowing it to be and i just think that's that's a problem i always say i feel like comedy is the place where we need that space and we need i feel a a great affection for it and a great feeling of like permissiveness and just a feeling of forgiveness as long as the comedian is punching up the only time I ever really take issue with a comedian is when they're punching down at somebody who's less powerful or, you know what I'm saying? If they're really hitting, yeah, I know there are, I know there are nuances to that, but like what I'm trying to say is that like in general, if somebody is trying to make people laugh in good faith, mm. even if it's quote unquote inappropriate, mm. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I think we need some of that. And it seems like we have to, if we lose that space, I feel like we lose a lot. Yeah, and the punching up, punching down thing is is interesting because I, you know, 
it's so complex, like why something is funny or who exactly is being made fun of in a joke that might otherwise seem very straightforward and obvious. Like there can be a joke where a comedian is making fun of like a person with an accent or a, a you know, way of speaking um, and, but they can be doing it in a way that is intentionally not actually making fun of people with funny accents and funny accents, you know, obviously I come down on the all accents are funny side of <laughs> comedy, but they're making fun of the people who think it's not okay to make fun of funny accents, you know, like sometimes there's like an right. added layer. And right. in that sense, those people can often be incredibly powerful. So making that joke is actually punching up, uh, punching up, even if it looks like, or to someone right. who's, who's just looking for problems or has a worldview that's very narrow or very black and white. It's like, they made fun of these people who speak like this. And it's like, no, no, no. They made fun of people like you who are on Twitter, like trying to destroy everyone 24 hours a day who actually have a lot of cultural power or, you know, what, so it's like, there's often like this other layer and, and that's what actually makes it funny when you, when you kind of deconstruct it. But yeah. It's uh, it's hard to get those nuances across when you're in this like in this battle with people. So that's like the philosophical. I mean, at least some of the philosophical side of you and your work and what's happening in the Book of Ein. And then there's spiritual, and we touched on this earlier. You were talking about going off to this like commune in Greece and meditating and stuff, and that's one of the like kind of pleasant and a bit unexpected aspects of this novel. I think you start off, you don't necessarily know that you're going to wind up in such a sort of heartfelt sort of spiritual place, but it makes me wonder like where you are spiritually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, obviously you, you know, you have a, uh, a kind of, you described your mother as what a new age psychotherapist in quotes. <laughs> I believe your father is a doctor yeah. as well. So some kind of doctor. So you yeah, come medical from medical. Doctor, yeah. All right. So you have that. I would assume those kinds of people might not be like super dogmatically monotheistically religious, though they might be. Um, but I'm just curious to know about that part of you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up Jewish, but not very, not, not really religious at all. And I, in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Sydney. Yes. In Sydney. But I didn't go to a religious, I went to a religious school for like, what's it called? Junior, junior school? No. Is that what it's called? Junior school? <laughs> that doesn't sound right. What do you call the grades from like? Elementary. Elementary. Okay. And then I, then I went to a, like a Christian school after that. I got into spirituality, honestly, I mean, a little bit through my mom, but like most seriously as a way to kind of deal with bouts of depression or anxiety or yeah I think meditation has like been a way for me to deal with that stuff and then like the experience of going to this particular place a few years ago yeah was like a really I I really thought and I still do think often that I should just stop doing anything else except pursuing enlightenment because it's obviously 
the only thing really worth doing. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that sounds crazy, but that's not to really me. It doesn't. How I feel. I'm the same. I'm the same yeah. exact way. <laughs> really? I'm this. I'm getting ready to go on. Uh, I haven't told anybody this because I'm kind of. I feel like people just sort of eye roll, but I'm getting ready to go on my very first meditation retreat. After being, I've been meditating since I was like 20 years old. Really? Uh, I'm so into it. It's like yeah. my. Fa- I love it. I yeah. love it. I genuinely yeah. find it interesting and. uh like it, it is probably the thing that I'm most like purely enthused about. Yeah. And it just changes your whole relationship to like reality. I mean, it, it kind of makes like, I don't know, the experience I had being at this place where I was meditating a lot was just that actually the sort of baseline experience of being alive is a kind of bliss. Like when you take away all the, all the ego stuff, all the voices, all the things that, you know, we torture ourselves with, like just being is like bliss. That's like, that's our natural state. So I, so like, and having had just glimpses of that, you know, experience, it just seems so obvious to me that I should just be pursuing that because all these other things I do to try to get attention and love and, you know, whatever I get these tiny little sort of, I I get a version of that, but it's sort of, it's like that kind of on speed or something. Like it's not, it's like the synthetic version of the bliss. Like that's sort of what, you know, even publishing a book, it's like, oh, this should be like a really, and this is going to sound very ungrateful. I mean, it is a nice, it is a, it is a very nice experience in many ways, but also it's a bit like, you know, there's no there there. It's kind of like, I don't know, uh, you, you feel sort of a little bit disconnected from the thing that you, you made like quite a long time ago. And, you know, it's just, yeah, there's there's like everything we kind of do to make ourselves happy or to, you know, um, feel fulfilled. I, I, it, it always feels like there's something between the actual experience and us or yeah I, I feel like that being state is like often not present so it's like what was the point what was the point of all yeah, this stuff it's easy to lose it it's easy yeah. to lose it and especially in this culture it's like such a noisy world we live yeah. in and it it can feel like I can often feel like a strong like let me just put it this way i often feel like a strong desire to be at odds with the culture mm. like in a like in a way that i feel like is healthy and not like super antagonistic or like violent or anything like that but just to resist to work against the stream the momentum of things that's pulling me or pushing me one way mm-hmm. i feel very a very strong desire innate desire that i think is connected to whatever spiritual orientation and like minimal understanding that I have it's connected to that it's like I feel like I want to resist whatever it is that's happening I whatever is pulling me towards that OnlyFans farm (laughs) you know (laughs) I I want I'm resist yeah I just think like yeah there's something else that I should be doing and uh I don't know I love that part I love that part of your novel Thank you. I mean, that like, to me, that's actually kind of at the heart of it is, you know, this idea of just 
sort of discovering and everyone has these moments of discovery I think where you feel like oh this thing I've been doing pursuing and devoting my life to like it's not it's not real or it's not the thing it's not working and yeah I think everyone has these moments of like fuck this you're all crazy and it's easy and for a character like Anna it's easy to say you're all idiots or I'm I'm going to go against the grain but I guess the harder thing is to kind of look at people and just be like oh you all feel this way like you you we all come to it at different moments we're all like conscious of it at different times but like at some level we all know it and so like the project as much as I always as much as I want to be like uh you know everyone's stupid and you know the only fans people and whatever it's like <laughs> I think they want I think they want this this like this state of bliss and and connection and being that you know that I do and I'm sure they've had glimpses or they will have glimpses. And if only we could all somehow like figure out that we all wanted it at exactly the same time and then we all like rise up or whatever. But as an artist, <laughs> there's a part of me that doesn't want this kind of revolution because then what the fuck would I write books about? Like if everyone was happy and the world was great, you know, and that's the problem with getting enlightened, it's not gonna I won't be able to write any books <laughs> so it's well, not like a the, choice. maybe not maybe not satire no or maybe I don't know but it feels like the people who like become super advanced spiritually are rarely working in Hollywood <laughs> no they're not <laughs> although you hear about people in Hollywood who have kind of made it to the top of whatever and then they do start seeking spiritual a spiritual path because they're like oh i i did it and it's not like it didn't bring me the things it was supposed I'm to i'm not fixed there's got to be something else yeah so if only we could all get there sooner um but yeah things are more complex than that i suppose so there's no chance of you like going off and becoming a nun or something. Well, no, like I was seriously considering that even like two months ago, I was like, well, that's kind of the path <laughs> for, for someone like me. It's kind of, yeah, going off and, and like living like a monk or something. I can imagine doing it for a while. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, going to Greece and having those experiences by the end, I usually am a bit like, okay, I'm ready to come back and keep doing my bullshit. But, um, <laughs> but maybe one day I won't feel that way and I'll just stay. <laughs> I don't know. You never know. You yeah. never know. Yeah. Well, I always ask people before I let them go, if they're working on anything else, it's fine if you're not, but I'm just curious to know if you have another book in the works or you said you were doing some TV stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been doing just TV writers' rooms and stuff in Australia, which is really fun, but a different kind of uh, experience in a nice way. It's like letting someone else sort of take the wheel. And but I am working on a new book, and I'm not sure how I what I would say about it, other than that it's sort of um, uh, I guess it's. A little bit about mental health and a little bit about Hungary. <laughs> the country. Yeah, I I spent half the summer there, and um, look, I'm not I'm not really saying what it's about. It's sort of about it's sort of about maybe um, a pilgrimage, pilgrimages, 
but yeah, I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I know how to talk about it yet, but I tried to learn Hungarian when I was in Hungary. So it's a little bit about that experience. Why um, were you in Hungary? I just thought it would be fun to go there and try to learn what I'd always been told was the hardest language in the world. My mother is Hungarian and, um, oh. yeah, so I just thought it would be interesting and it was really interesting and I really loved Budapest and I want to go and spend more time there. So I tend to sort of do things and then write about them and then do another thing that like relates to the thing. And, you know, I mean, it's not, it's nothing new. It's life imitating art, but I'm sort of looking for the stories <laughs> or I get that. Yeah. It's a little bit. And then like you that. find, and then you find ways like they start, you know, the, the art is in the amalgamation, right? Exactly. It's like you connect, you're connecting these disparate things and you're exactly. in the process of, of drawing those lines right now. Yeah. And you make meaning out of an experience that would otherwise be like boring, sad, not interesting, you know, it's a way in a sense of um, justifying <laughs> your bad decisions or, or just, or, you know, like milking life for the, for the, in, you know, the substance or something. Well, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a great excuse to get out <laughs> into the world and yeah. do stuff, right? Yeah, I think so. It is good. It's not good for like answering that question, where do you live? Because, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I literally can't answer that question. So, but yeah, it is, it's good. I'm lucky. It's, it's, it's been fun since the pandemic sort of stopped. Before that, it was not. But yeah, now, it, now it's more fun. All right. Well, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on the Book of Ein. And thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. This was really fun. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Lexi Freeman, author of the new novel entitled The Book of Ein, available now from Catapult Press. You can find Lexi on the internet at LexiFreeman.com. Follow her on social media. I believe she is on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, the book is called The Book of Ein. It is unusually funny and wicked smart. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. And you can join The Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a minute or two and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating. Wherever you listen, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people gear, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It's a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so... It's my book. You can read it, or I'll read it to you. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with author Lindsay Hunter. She has a new novel out called Hot Springs Drive. It has been generating a lot of buzz. It is the new one from Roxanne Gay Books. So, Lindsay Hunter, 
coming up on Wednesday on The Other People Show. Stay tuned.